Um, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Helen Moore, and it's my great pleasure to chair this event, which is a European Institute event for the LSE Literary Festival. A very warm welcome to Professor David Abulafia from Cambridge, who will be speaking on the subject, My Mediterranean. After the talk and a discussion between us, um, Professor Abulafia will accept questions from the floor. Uh, a few little housekeeping points, if you will forgive me, before we start. Um, the Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSELitFest, all one word, and it is hoped that this event will be recorded and podcasted. So let's give a warm welcome to Professor David Abilafia. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Um, what I'm proposing to do is to say a little bit about how I came to write the book, of which I will try to show you the cover, actually. Um, not quite sure what I need to do, but we shall see. There we are. Uh, how I came to write this book, um, which uh, came out um, in May 2011, paperback, uh, last year. And then I want, to, having described what I'm trying to do in the book, then I think I'll show you some images from the book, because it's quite nicely illustrated with about 60 illustrations. Then we'll have our discussion after that. So I suppose the first question is, why am I so foolhardy as to write uh, history of the Mediterranean, which goes back to 22,000 BC and comes up to 2010. I'm glad to say that uh, it went to press just as the Arab Spring was beginning to, uh, to happen and just as the uh, financial crisis in Greece and other parts of the Eurozone was beginning. So I didn't have to engage with that, I'm you know, very pleased to be able to say. But nonetheless, it was an enormous canvas to try to follow, to cover, and no historian is really likely to possess the expertise to be able to deal with all of that. As we shall see, the famous French historian Fernand Brodel focused his account of the Mediterranean on the late 16th century. I'll be saying a bit more about the differences between my approach and his in a moment. Simply in terms of the command of the primary sources, for instance. Uh, I obviously can't claim to have an equal command of those sources. Uh, it also involves a great deal of use of archaeological evidence. Now, I have to say that ever since I was at school, I've been fascinated by archaeological evidence, and so I do use quite a lot of it. But I've never sat there with a trowel in my hand. I don't claim to be an archaeologist. So what is one trying to do? Well, my first experience of putting together a history of the Mediterranean was, in fact, not this book, but a book which Thames and Hudson published. Thames and Hudson, of course, are famous for their beautiful art history books. And true to form, what they produced was a very lavish volume of essays edited by me, taking the reader through the history of the Mediterranean from prehistory to the present day. But what came across to me when this book was published in 2003 was very much the sense that we all had very different approaches to what we understood Mediterranean history to be. So one of the things I want to talk about today is what I understand Mediterranean history to be. You had some people, for instance, who wrote very much about naval conflicts, and you had other people 
people who wrote about economic relationships. Uh, and the editor, of course, tries to impose a degree of order. The way I tried to do this, actually, was to have connecting little essays, which I wrote myself, which could sort of pick up on the points that individual authors hadn't developed. But I was aware that somebody needed, perhaps, to come forward, be brave enough, foolhardy enough to produce an integrated approach. So uh, that's one part of it. The other part of it is a very strong belief that I have that professional historians should be trying to reach a wider public. Uh, It's very easy for historians nowadays to forget that we should be addressing not just our own colleagues, uh, that we're talking about the past experiences of humanity of which we are all a part, and it's reasonable to expect other members of humanity to take an interest not just in their own past, but in the, in the past of their own country, but of other countries, other parts of the world with which they might interact. And I'd really like to see more scholars doing this. I think it has to be said that in Cambridge we have some sort of a tradition of this, of writing for wider audiences, which went back to quite a famous historian who was very active in the 60s and 70s, J.H. Plum. And he had actually a very close link with my publisher, Penguin Books. Uh, And one of the things which they managed to do in those days was to publish a lot of works aimed at a wider audience. But nowadays, academics are really under tremendous pressure from research assessment exercises, from research excellent frameworks, all these things, to produce one monograph after another. Indeed, if you hope to be promoted, of course, in the humanities, it will tend to be your first monograph getting you tenure, your second monograph getting you, well, in America, I suppose it would be associate professor and then full professor and then distinguished professor, and so it goes on, one monograph after another, some of which might be written for half a dozen people. So we need to get away from that. We need actually to give some credit to historians and others in the humanities who are writing for broader audiences. Now, again, looking at a book, even though I admit it's a long book, uh, one can't cover everything. And so what I've tried to do is, in a certain sense, to set out in the book what you might call a sort of syllabus for Mediterranean history, a sort of an agenda which people are then free to quarrel with and to say, well, look, for instance, when I deal with the 18th century, I've got all this material about the Russians in the Mediterranean, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I can't claim that the Russians dominated the Mediterranean, but I tried to see the 18th century Mediterranean through the prism of these extraordinary Russian naval activities in that area. But obviously there's a lot more that one could talk about. One could say a lot more than I do about Napoleon's campaigns in the Mediterranean, for instance. So it's a question of the principles of selection and an attempt, as we're to set out an agenda for the future, for those who want to study the history of the Mediterranean, with a central question being what forces have bound together the opposite shores of the Mediterranean. So the idea, of course, is to provoke as much as to settle the issue. Such a book is inevitably extremely selective. The book has been published at a time when historians have become more and more interested in what they call transnational history. It's a term I'm not very happy with. I don't think I use it once in the book, in fact. But any number of Mediterranean history institutes, uh, Mediterranean studies seminars and so on across the world flaunt this word, transnational. The problem being, of course, that before the emergence of the nation state, it's probably a rather anachronistic term to use. Uh, But certainly looking not just at the Mediterranean, but at other seas as well, the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, and smaller seas from this sort of 
I'll use the word transnational perspective, has become very fashionable. And Mediterranean history seminars exist way beyond the Mediterranean. I've spoken in Finland, Australia, California, which is one of the most active places indeed. So it's become the subject of the moment. Well, having said that, uh, what distinguishes my approach from the sort of approach that you'll find in the existing literature. And inevitably, if you write an ambitious book, I suppose one has to put up with being compared with uh, historians of, of, well, I mean, somebody of the eminence of Fernand Brodel. I speak in modesty. I'm not trying to to sort of uh, pull the carpet from under Brodel's feet. But Fernand Brodel was probably one of the most influential historians of the 20th century, uh, not just in France, but much further afield. And in his book, The Mediterranean and the Mediterranean World at the time of Philip II, he adopted what I would call a horizontal approach to the history of the Mediterranean. That's to say we, as I hinted earlier, we're looking at a slice through time. We're looking at the events either side of the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 and and trying to explain what happens in that battle, the confrontation between the Spaniards and the Turks, in the light of all the commercial networks, but beyond that also the physical configuration of the Mediterranean at the time. And inevitably this involved also looking a little bit further back in time, a little bit further forward in time. Uh, But uh, quite apart from the fact that my book adopts what I would call a vertical approach, and that's to say... I'm starting, as it were, at the beginning, uh, 22,000 BC, uh, with my Neanderthal woman on Gibraltar uh, and then coming through to the present. So a very different approach uh, to to, uh, the sort of time framework, but also a very different approach in terms of my understanding of the role of the individual in the history of the Mediterranean, in history generally. And this was something where... Brodel had a very distinctive set of views, very influential set of views, regarding uh, human beings very much as sort of playthings of greater forces. And this would even apply to somebody like King Philip II, the Spanish king, one of the most uh, powerful rulers in human history. I mean, after all, he ruled great tracts of of an entire other continent, South America and also Central America and so on. Here was somebody whose whose territorial territorial extent of his domains was unprecedented, and yet in Brodel he's presented almost as the product of forces far, far greater than the individual. Uh, Brodel also had a very distinctive aspect to change over time, famous phrase that he uses is all change is slow. I mean, he had a very structured idea of slow time, fast time, immediate events, and so on. But tied in with this was an attitude which was very much current among French historians in the Brodel school, that what they called histoire événementielle, the history of events, was something which really should I need to use the word, should be despised. It was something which uh, really a serious historian didn't do because a serious historian was looking for these permanent structures. Uh, and, uh, And even the Battle of Lepanto, which is, in a certain sense, that's an event, right, a major battle in the Mediterranean off the coast of Greece, but at the same time it could only be understood in the context of these wider structures. 
And sometimes this involved a neglect, particularly of political history, and of how political history intertwined with, for instance, the furthering of trade. And it seems to me there were real opportunities that Brodel and his colleagues missed in understanding the linkage between political and economic factors. Another area where I found myself increasingly critical of Brodel's approach, of the Annales School in France as a whole, was his... uh, lack of interest, really, in the history of religion. The Mediterranean has recently been described in a collection of essays as the faithful sea. Uh, Religious ideas are something which spread across this sea extremely extremely easily in the baggage, in the cultural baggage of merchants, pilgrims, obviously, slaves, all sorts of people. One of the major characteristics of the Mediterranean, even before the rise of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is the way in which religious ideas are crossing this space. So that we have, if we were to take the example of the ancient Etruscans, we have influences coming in from the Greek world, uh, so that their gods and goddesses become identified with those they could hear about in Homer, for instance. Uh, And also, uh, we find a lot of influence in their case from much further east, from a country we would now call Turkey, and lands even further to the east than that. So the Mediterranean is a channel through which these religious ideas are spread very wide, uh, very far afield. And with the coming of the three Abrahamic religions, we find some really quite extraordinary examples of the mixing of uh, these religions, not just the influence they might have if you were to look at Muslim Spain, for instance, in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, the way in which the Jews clearly, for instance, are very much influenced by uh, not just uh, the, the, the customs, the culture of the Muslims around them who rule southern Spain in that period, but also their theology is something which is very much molded by their contact with Islam. But then it goes even further than that, because once you get into the early modern period, you have groups like the Maranos, who are descended from the Jews that I just referred to, people who have been uh, required to, uh, to convert to Christianity, but under the veneer of Christianity are maintaining their ancestral Jewish beliefs. And these people, very often we find, are living a sort of double life. It's a fascinating feature of life in the Mediterranean in the 16th, 17th centuries to identify merchants moving back and forth between, let's say, Smyrna, Izmir in Turkey on the one hand and the coasts of Spain via Venice or Livorno in Italy. And as they move back and forth, they change their identity, they change their name, they change their religion. So when they turn up on the shores of Spain, of course, they hope they will be able to escape from the attention of the Spanish Inquisition, that they won't be identified as what they really are. But this sets off in their own minds all sorts of mental conflicts which have been the subject of very interesting studies in the past. But taking the uh, history of the Mediterranean since the rise of Christianity and Islam as a whole, one of the very interesting features that we do observe is the way in which a great many of the port cities around the edges of the Mediterranean have become places. The word that we tend to use is convivencia, which is a Spanish word, uh, living together, living together in a sort of harmony. I don't want to exaggerate the degree of harmony that's involved but the emergence of places where these different communities learned to live side by side, they interacted, 
in a very positive way, not just through trade, but also, as I say, borrowing cultural motifs from one another. Uh, and it's something which survived within the Mediterranean world over very many centuries, and something which really, in my view, and this is something I do deal with uh, at some length uh, in the later parts of the book, it's something that really only, only fell to pieces in the course of the 20th century. Uh, and there are a number of uh, rather ghastly episodes that bring this out, the uh, deportation, the extermination of the Jews of Salonika in 1943, the expulsion of uh, all the uh, various religious and uh, ethnic groups from Alexandria in mainly 1956, but uh, around that time anyway, uh, and the sort of uh, Egyptification, if you like, of a city which had seen itself as a cosmopolitan center, which had seen itself not even as part of Egypt, but as a sort of cosmopolitan Mediterranean city. So we see around that time, we see the end of what you might call an old civilization of convivencia. Now, coming back to uh, Brodel's view of the Mediterranean, one of the features which strikes me very forcibly is how enormous his Mediterranean is. He has, it's the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world, you have to remember, so he has a map at one point which shows the whole of Europe, the whole of the Mediterranean, and the whole of Africa. And this is uh, the whole sphere, the whole Western Hemisphere, if you like, uh, with the Mediterranean at its centre. And, of course, he's trying to make a valid point about the way in which the ramifications of Mediterranean trade reached across the Sahara and so on. But what I've tried to do, not just to make it manageable, but because I think people, particularly when they've set up their institutes of Mediterranean history or their journals of Mediterranean history or whatever it may be, they've used this term in a very free but also unthinking way to describe anything that goes on around the Mediterranean. So, for instance, the Mediterranean Historical Review, a respected journal, I'm actually on the editorial board of it, but they will publish articles on, you know, the political crisis in, in Greece in the 1950s or something. Well, that to me isn't actually Mediterranean history in the way that I'm trying to write it in this book, because what I'm trying to look at is very much the sea itself, really trying to address the problem of how you write the history of a sea. And after all, a sea doesn't have permanent occupants. Uh, well, it has the bones of those who've, who've drowned in shipwrecks and so on. It has the islands in the middle, admittedly. But, but basically, the sea is a place of transience, uh, people crossing back and forth. So you're trying to write the history of people on the move and people who sometimes are in the process displaced mentally as well as physically. The alien merchant who turns up on the shores, I mean, a Catalan merchant, Christian Catalan merchant turning up on the shores of North Africa in the 13th, 14th centuries in an environment which is a very different environment to the one religiously, culturally, and so on, to the one in which he has been, uh, he has been brought up. So, um, so trying to concentrate on the sea itself, uh, if you read the book, you can tell me whether you think it actually works. Now, underlying all this is something where I think Brodel and I actually do have a lot in common, and this is the emphasis on the importance of trade. It's the merchants who create the networks that bind the different shores, the Asian, African, European shores of the Mediterranean together, 
Um, and this we see very early on. We see it with the arrival of Phoenician merchants in the 9th century BC or whenever, some doubt about the exact date, as far away as southern Spain. Uh, we see it also in the Middle Ages with the activities of the Venetians, Genoese, Catalans, and so on, spreading right across the Mediterranean. And these phases of the commercial economic integration of the Mediterranean really uh, give, the, give the book a certain amount of structure, I hope, because what I've tried to distinguish is five phases in Mediterranean history, what I call the first, second, third, fourth, fifth Mediterranean, uh, beginning in the Bronze Age, which is followed by a period of collapse with a period of barbarian invasions, uh, and then another period of collapse at the end of antiquity, when we have, and here I'm adopting uh, a rather controversial view nowadays, but I do see from a Mediterranean perspective a sort of dark age happening with the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, and then a different sort of crisis which occurs not as a result of barbarian invasions and a long recession, but as, as a result of the arrival of disease, the Black Death wiping out half the European population, perhaps half the North African population in the middle of the 14th century. And then finally, a phase, the phase that I suppose we're in, what I call the Fifth Mediterranean, which is the result of a technological revolution, the coming of the steamship, the building of the Suez Canal and so on, which in various ways transforms the relationship between the Mediterranean and the rest of the world. But there we're looking at the Mediterranean seen in a global setting of traffic from, for instance, this country all the way to India, an imperial setting, if you like. So um, those are the sorts of issues that I'm trying to deal with in the book. And I think perhaps it might be helpful just to show you a few illustrations from the book to give you an idea of how they can be expressed visually. So I now have to sort of click my way. Just this, this one. Ah, very good. Ah, let's see what happens. Uh, I'm going to click through till I find the one I actually want to talk about. Sorry, let's take a second. So, uh, for instance, if we're trying to think about the Mediterranean as a place of commercial contacts across the water, this is something we can trace right back to the Bronze Age. We have these remarkable frescoes from Santorini, an island off the coast of Greece, which was a sort of commercial colony of the ancient Minoan or Cretan Empire. And here you see something, I mean, it's, it's an amazing image in one of their frescoes with the boat uh, in the front, with uh, people in the town uh, looking out to sea, uh, and even with a lion chasing some deer in the mountains, which is highly implausible on a small Greek island. I mean, there weren't any lions, there probably weren't any deer either, but anyway. Uh, so it's something of an idealised image. But what it reminds us is that this process of the economic integration of the Mediterranean, it begins way back in, we're talking here about 1500 BC or so, at a time when the Western Mediterranean isn't really part of the system, but it begins in the Eastern Mediterranean, and this extraordinary <coughs> Minoan civilization in Crete is a very good example of uh, the, you know, the evidence, you know, it's not surprising that I devote quite a lot of space to the Minoans in explaining how these networks function. There were, of course, others as well alongside them. Now, if I just move through, um, we shall see in a minute. Uh, no, if I go back to that one. 
Um, I mentioned the Phoenicians, and here we have, again, if we're just thinking about the history of trade, a marvellous bit of evidence in an early Phoenician inscription from perhaps the 8th century BC found at Nora in southern Sardinia. And this is evidence that the scenario I just painted, where we had the Cretans uh, really playing a role within the eastern Mediterranean, but not venturing far beyond Sicily. Uh, now we're in a different scenario in which the Phoenicians are spreading right across past Sardinia, founding a colony in Carthage, of which this next picture is evidence. This is a picture of a Carthaginian priest taking a child to the place of human sacrifice. I don't think we want to look at that for too long. Um, uh, and then further on, as I say, towards Spain. And we also have evidence in the form, just wait a second, of, um, I mentioned the Etruscans, for instance. This is one of a series of three gold tablets from just before 500 BC, which uh, survived two of them in Etruscan and the other one in Phoenician, the dedication of a temple by an Etruscan king uh, just to the north of Rome uh, to a Phoenician goddess, Astarte. So this idea of the transmission of religious ideas, there it is, and, and, and it's expressed through also a commercial treaty, which is clearly taking place between this king and, uh, and the other side, and the, yeah, and the Phoenicians, probably from Carthage, maybe from, from, uh, uh, from Phoenicia itself. Um, if we take this image, we, again, we have evidence of some of the religious interactions taking place. This is an inscription from a synagogue at Ostia, the port of Rome, which is mainly in Greek, though not entirely, and therefore speaks for the fact that the Jews of Ostia were basically a Greek-speaking community, and they, therefore, to a large extent, of East Mediterranean ancestry. Uh, but it's also interesting because this building was in use for about 400 years. So it's a building with an extraordinarily long history. Uh, so here we are, another example, very early example, of the spread of the oldest of the Abrahamic faiths across the Mediterranean. But it's not simply a question of uh, the contact between religions. This, which is in Acre, uh, in what's now Israel, this is one of the funduks, one of the warehouses where the merchants would have stored their goods. These were places which sprang up all around the Mediterranean. Uh, there are surviving examples in places like Tunis and so on, uh, where Venetian, Genoese, Catalans, they all had their own. This was actually the royal funduk, but it's the best surviving one, really, in that part of the world. Uh, so evidence of the importance of these trade networks with these warehouses, which were also hotels, which had baths and all sorts of things. This from the 13th century, though, reconstructed by the Turks. And, well, I don't want to multiply too many of the examples, but if we were to move on to... Let me just show a few images which speak of this theme of the convivencia of the different peoples in the Mediterranean. I'm afraid I'll have to flick through quite fast. Ignore all these... Uh, they're very big files, which I think is why it's taking a bit of time. Um, the uh, convivencia also breaks down. I've lost it. 
Convivencia breaks down as well as being, a, as I would say, a rather positive force in relations between peoples and religions. Here is a, a painting showing the expulsion of the Moriscos, the Christianized Moors of Spain who were expelled in 1609 to 1614. Even those who insisted that they were devout Christians expelled a very large number of people, tens and tens of thousands of people expelled from Spain. Um, to the great damage, actually, of the economy of areas like Valencia. So, Convivencia has its ups and downs, but if we move to the 19th century, we can see uh, this is an image of Trieste. And Trieste, I suppose, is one of the places of Convivencia we might want to settle on. I say a little bit about this in the book if we were talking about more modern times. Uh, it was, of course, the gateway of the Austro-Hungarian Empire into the Mediterranean. And you think of some of the writers who were there, Italo Svevo and people like that, a mixed population of uh, Italians, Jews, Slovenes, Croatians, uh, German speakers, and so on. Uh, and this, again, is an example, although it happened in less dramatic circumstances than Salonika or Alexandra, it's an example of a sort of lost Convidencia. I mean, Trieste nowadays is an Italian city with a, uh, um, a, a Slavonic minority. Alexandria, another example, of course, of this phenomenon of Convivencia in the 19th century. You can actually see a French flag flying above one of the buildings. This was the main square. And in this square was a court where representatives of the European nations judged commercial cases. So uh, Alexandria, although technically part of the Egyptian kingdom, indeed the seat of one of the royal palaces, on the other hand, the Europeans had this very, very important role in its administration. Uh, and they like to hark back to the classical des description of Alexandria as Alexandria ad Egyptum, which they understood to mean Alexandria not in Egypt, but by the side of, on the way to Egypt. They were very conscious of their European connections, and most of them uh, continued to speak European languages. And we were talking about, what, 24,000 Italians and uh, even large number of Greeks and so on in the city. Nowadays, these populations have disappeared. Um, so... Um, uh, here, my final picture, just to remind you that the Mediterranean has, in the most recent decades, become a place of uh, economic, uh, a particular type of economic crisis. We're looking at e an ecological crisis in the Mediterranean as a result of uncontrolled building around its edges, the dumping of effluents in the Mediterranean, the damage that's been done, particularly to the fish population. And here is Yoret de Mar in Catalonia on a, a bad day, you might say, uh, with this amazing crowd of people. I mean, it really doesn't look a very comfortable place to be. Um, but the Mediterranean has changed its relationship to us since the middle of the 20th century and has become a sort of playground for us. But we also have to be very conscious, something I try to say in the book, we have to be very conscious of the effect that this actually has on the environment that I think many of us love, but it's, uh, it's a fragile environment. I think that's a good note on which to stop. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much indeed. Um, I wonder if we can start by um, thinking a bit more about this, uh, this term, convivencia, which as you were talking, I thought this is a rather interesting manifestation of a, a kind of living together that may not have been originally anticipated by the early medieval peoples of the Mediterranean. It strikes me also that it's an untranslatable term in English, and maybe that's one of the reasons why British Isles is a non-Mediterranean com- um, country. Um, and um, it, it, it struck me also reading your book that um, there's a certain link between, the, if you like, the kind of the, the principle of convivencia and the dedication of your book. Anyone here who's read it will have noticed possibly that you dedicate the book to your ancestors. And um, I wonder if you, you could tell us a little bit more about the, um, if you like, the importance of the idea of convivencia and its breakdown, if you like, the, the stories of exile and diaspora that. Mm-hmm spin out through your book in terms of the actual writing of this history? Yes, well, I mean, to begin with the term uh, convivencia, um, now you're right, it is an untranslatable term, and I think what one's trying to convey when one uses it, but of course different historians will use it in slightly different ways, some in a much more romantic way. I mean, for instance, there's a well-known book, The Ornament of the World, by Maria Rosa Menocal. Uh, who's a professor at Yale, I have great respect for her, but it is a rather romantic view of this convivencia as a real, um, a really productive, positive experience. Well, it did have its downside. Sometimes when different communities live cheek by jowl, of course tensions are set off, there are suspicions, there are periods of ghettoization for one community or another, it may be the Jews, it may be the Muslims, and so on. But what one's, I think, trying to say is that uh, living together, not necessarily in harmony, but the tension that does exist is quite a productive tension. Mm. Um, and it's also an experience of living side by side where people do, by and large, retain their identity, which is interesting. I mean, we saw those Moriscos um, who are the victims of, as I said, the abandonment of any spirit of convivencia. But what's interesting about them is that they have actually retained their sense of identity over many centuries. I mentioned the Moranos as well. So um, when we actually get into the port cities, of course, what we're looking at is places which, because they're receptive to foreign merchants, are places with these very mixed populations which um, realise they have to get on with one another if they're actually going to achieve their aim, which is to draw profit from trade and industry and so on. And the rulers also foster this, of course, because it's very much in their interests to uh, protect these communities in order to guarantee their income. But, yes, turning to the more personal aspects of this, um, I yes, I mean, how do I... I have to say, I mean, some of my ancestors appear in the book, um, and I couldn't resist doing that. uh, But on the other hand, actually, what two of them do have a sort of a real role, I think, to play in what's happening. And um, there is that sort of sense. I mean, if, as in my case, you're descended from a family, we, we know a lot about their history in Spain up to 1492, uh, they were expelled with all the Spanish Jews then. Uh, they then moved right across the Mediterranean to, uh, to the Holy Land and settled in Safed, or Tzifat, as it's sometimes called, which was unusual, actually. Not very many of the uh, Jewish refugees went there. They, they, they must have gone via Italy, because there is a branch of the family in Italy, Bolafi, Abolafio, it comes under various forms. 
So um, then we know a lot about their history there, but they didn't just stay in Galilee. They also, as one particularly important one, who went off to Izmir, another one I was just reading the other day, actually, uh, though he moved away from the Mediterranean, who... uh, who became the uh, chief rabbi of Sofia in Bulgaria and so on. Um, so they're moving around a lot. And, of course, I'm curious, I mean, what, what for them did this experience of crossing the sea, assuming they didn't try to get to Izmir by land, what did that actually involve? Uh, but certainly at some points mm. in their history, uh, particularly around 1492, they were clearly taking these massive sea voyages. So it is something which, uh, just from that point of view, obviously excites my curiosity, but also the sort of sense that I have that they had been, in the best of times, they'd been able to coexist very productively with their neighbours in Spain, certainly where uh, they they lived mainly in Toledo at a Christian court, but uh, we know they were involved in translating Arabic works into, uh, into other languages and things like this. Uh, they were multilingual, um, and equally when they're living in, later on they live in Tiberias in the 18th century, and here we know that there was contact not just with the local Muslim community, but with Christians in the area there's talk of a sort of disputation between one of my ancestors and the local Christians, a very friendly disputation about the merits of their religion. So that sort of sense that it was possible to live side by side. And, of course, what, one, what I talk about at the end of the book, and which I, I, think, I think the way I express it in the book, you can see there is a sort of nostalgia, if you like, mm. for that lost world. It has all broken down as a result of the intense nationalisms of the 20th century. Uh, and I talk quite a lot about these national movements. We've got the events in Smyrna, Izmir in 1922. <coughs> I've mentioned already Salonika. Uh, we've got uh, the creation of Israel, which one of the effects of which was certainly to draw the Jewish population of the Mediterranean away from Mediterranean countries towards mm. just one corner. So if you set aside the south of France, those communities have now disappeared. Mm. And it, so, um, yeah, the book is impregnated with a sort of nostalgia for that lost world. I remember being struck near the end where you talk about Tel Aviv as the, the, the first new Mediterranean city mm. since the medieval period, mm. um, which is a, a different, it seems to me, one of the, the remarkable things that comes from your method is a very different way of regarding national narratives to sort of break down the national identity and present Tel Aviv as a city like Carthage, for example, a new Mediterranean city. Um, Now, I may not be the only person in the room who um, noticed a certain potential affinity between your book and, say, Edmund Duval's Hair with Amber Eyes um, in terms of the the writing of history, if you like. You mentioned um, uh, Brodel and the the, the writing of big, big history, grand narratives and so on. And at the same time, one sees someone like Edmund Duval writing history through family memoir, almost. Yeah. And, and I, I wondered whether you, you might want to say a few words about how uh, small narratives uh, of family or, or, or displacement of peoples can fit into um, what one might call big history, mm. for example. Um, well, I, I certainly um, made use... I mean, this is dealing with relatively recent times, I did make use of a number of uh, personal narratives. There's a very nice narrative called Farewell to Salonika, 
which has actually been published here. I, I picked up an English translation in Istanbul, but it's also appeared in England. And um, this was the story of quite a prosperous family in Salonika um, in the period of the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, um, 1920s and so on. And those narratives I found actually extremely helpful in, uh, although obviously one understands that they are just one person's mm. sort of take on, on this, but in just trying to understand the dynamic of you know, how, in this case, Salonikan Jews interacted with the Bulgarians, interacted with the Greeks, Turks, and so on. Um, of course, one's always got to be conscious that these are just the product of one particular person. There's a, another example that I think has been quite widely sort of diffused. A man called Andre Ajiman wrote a book, Out of Egypt, which was a sort of semi-fictionalized account of his experiences as a young man in Alexandria. And it's a lovely book, but uh, it has some remarkable characters in it. But I think Ajiman himself would be the first person to insist that it's deliberately overdrawn. So, one, of course, one wants to be careful about that. Um, uh, therefore, it's always a question of looking at other types of evidence. So, in the case of Alexandria, for instance, well, uh, I was able thanks to an invitation to go and give a lecture there. I was able to go around the city. I was shown by my host a rather remarkable man called Mohammed Awad, who is very much involved with the new Bibliotheca Alexandrina. So he drove me around, showed me where you know, the Italian hospital had been, the Greek cemetery, uh, the Menashe synagogue. So we're, we're the Coptic churches, of course, though the Copts are still there. Um, and so it went on. So one could really get a sense of the sort of physical setting, which otherwise is easily lost because the city mm. has been completely Arabized subsequently. So I think combining, um, combining these memoirs, actually the same, you mentioned Tel Aviv, the same with Tel Aviv and Jaffa. Mm. Uh, I talk about, in the book, I talk about a sort of distant relative of mine who was involved in uh, setting up a suburb of Jaffa and then helping to found Tel Aviv. And it was, again, very helpful, actually, to go there to find his house, which has a little plaque outside, so we knew it was the right house. And, um, and then uh, going, there's a big inscription in one of the main streets of Tel Aviv. His name appears as one of the founders of the city. So you could... So, you know, that was sort of, as well, archaeological evidence, which was extremely important to me. And at the same time, there was a memoir produced by members of my family uh, who, uh, who you know, write about all these events. Um, a little book called, is it called Bare Feet on Golden Sands. It's privately like published, it. but it's, uh, it's a nice title. And how do you think a historian of, of big narratives like this can deal with the evidential gaps? For example, the, the lack of evidence concerning the role of women in Mediterranean history, which you deal with yeah. briefly at the end. No, it's very tricky, uh, and of course one becomes particularly conscious of this the further back one goes in time, um, and uh, in, very challenging, particularly when you're looking at um, the ancient world, the medieval world. Um, what I say in the book, uh, towards the end of the book, I say that the history of the Mediterranean is to a large extent, perhaps a surprising extent, a male history, and I think this is partly bound up with the fact that at least the approach that I've adopted, which is concerned with people moving across the surface of the Mediterranean, these are the main actors in the book, they do tend to be male. And one understands why, because merchants, although actually in medieval Genoa there certainly were female merchants, 
uh, or in, um, in early medieval Egypt, we know about female merchants. But they stayed put uh, because it wasn't as clearly, you know, there were dangers for a woman traveling on her own. So most of the evidence for the movement uh, across the Mediterranean that concerns merchants, concerns men, pilgrims, slightly different story actually. Mm. You can begin, there are enough, just enough, um, going right back into antiquity, early Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem who, who are female. But it doesn't add up to an enormous amount. And then the political actors, at a time when nearly all the major political actors were men anyway, perhaps it's not surprising that you don't find a great many major political actors. There's one, actually, whom I do discuss, Doña Gracia Mendez, who's this uh, Portuguese Marano who, uh, who uh, spends time in all, all sorts of countries. I mean, she's in Antwerp, uh, well, she comes from Portugal, Antwerp, Venice, um, Dubrovnik, mm. Istanbul, finally. Um, and the point about her is that she's, she's exceptional. That, you know, th- this is really an extraordinary case of a woman who exercises not just financial power but political power and is recognized as such by the Turkish authorities. But, um, yes, I, there's one great exception, however, and that is slaves. Of course, mm-hmm. you're talking about the things about which we don't have a great deal of evidence the evidence that we have about slaves tends to be in the form of a reference in, let's say, a Catalan trading document of 1300, which might refer to a, um, a female slave from North Africa, give her name, uh, and it's clear she's a Muslim. Or the other way around, of course, Christian slaves who are in the North African cities. Uh, but it's impossible to do much more than yes. pluck the names out of it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, don't, we can't construct a biography for mm. these people. And there one is dealing with, of course, uh, quite a considerable movement of women back and forth the Mediterranean, uh, but, but without enough evidence, really, to write their history. I know it's always dangerous to um, ask a historian to turn into a prognosticator, but what would you predict for the sixth Mediterranean, do you think? which probably one might start with the Arab Spring, though I'm not sure you knew that when you were going to plan your book. Um, Yes, I think the issue for the uh, future of the Mediterranean is, I mean, obviously the the political uncertainty, the economic uncertainty Mm. around Greece and uh, other European countries in the Mediterranean, all of this is, is, is of critical importance but on top of that, as I said when I showed this image, there is the ecological issue that the Mediterranean is an example of a dying sea. I think the Baltic is in, in an even worse shape at the moment. Uh, you see this in the simple fact that the size of fish, uh, they're shrinking all the time. Um, and this is apparently partly to do with trawling techniques which are uh, interrupting the food chain, all sorts of issues like this. So to me, the really important issue that we have to address in the future of the Mediterranean is going to be the, the series of environmental mm-hmm. issues and recognizing that we have poisoned the Mediterranean. Uh, as far as the political and economic situation is concerned, Uh, Well, my view really is that um, opportunities were missed in the 
50s and 60s when the European common market as it then was coming as it then was, was coming into existence. Of course, the focal point of the um, sort of political administrative life of this community was up north, is up north in Brussels. Um, and as more countries entered into the Union, of course, they again, they tended to look northwards, they tended to look away from the Mediterranean, they tended to see Germany, obviously, as the sort of economic model to which they would aspire. Um, and that led to a neglect of trans-Mediterranean contacts, economic, political, cultural, and so on, which was very much accentuated by the policy of the Soviet Union, yeah. which was, of course, trying to establish its own sphere of influence in the Mediterranean. It, it succeeded to some extent uh, with NASA in Egypt, with uh, Libya, Algeria, and so on. Um, and so the Mediterranean was... In, from the 50s onwards, it became a very fractured, sort of fragmented sea in which North and South were not really relating to one another. Uh, and I think one of the challenges that will arise out of the Arab Spring is the extent to which the countries on the northern shore are willing to engage seriously, uh, for instance, by means of very heavy investment, in, well, Tunisia is a good starting point because Tunisia actually has considerable resources. I mean, there's real potential there. Um, and if one can just try to build closer bonds across the Mediterranean, I think that was, that's going to make an enormous difference to the future of the region. But at the moment, of course, we're still stuck in, there's a sort of stalemate. Yeah. I mean, we've still got the euro crisis. We didn't hear about it, but the Greek economy is still, you know, extremely wobbly. And now we're told that Italy is in for another phase of instability as a result of its uh, curious election results. So... Um, so I'm not optimistic about that, actually. In fact, everything I've said about the future of the Mediterranean is really rather pessimistic, isn't it? It did strike me reading your book that, um, if you like, the 20th century's construction of Europe as a landmass mm. is really a blip in terms of the historical perspective because you, you methodologically, consciously set your face against mm. landmass thinking mm. um, and refuse to go into the interior in what you're writing about, no. it, obviously in repudiation of Brodel and going down as far as South Africa. Um, so to a certain extent, um, without floating too many political boats, might one say that if the landmass thinking of the EU is a blip, are we seeing a sort of return to the mean and the norm, which is a more... Mediterranean geopolitical structure rather than a landmass-based one. Do you see what I mean? Is this yeah. part of the problem that we're facing now is that the landmass thinking is not the way Europe and its sea and North Africa have traditionally worked best together? No, I would agree with that. And I, the, the question is how we can get out of that. Um, I think, uh, I, I mean, sometimes when I've talked about this subject, I've actually begun with this whole issue of how we define the continents around the Mediterranean and the sort of game I play is to say well let's look at the Mediterranean islands uh, Mallorca, Sardinia, Sicily, Crete, Cyprus they've all been ruled actually from uh, Africa or Asia and as a way if the history of the Mediterranean had come out differently we might well think of of Mallorca as part of North Africa. We should really think of Cyprus as part of Asia. I mean, it's just this very interesting sort of cultural issue here. Somehow we've been, we've been bamboozled into thinking that an island which is situated nowhere near Europe is in fact part of Europe. 
Um, and that's to do with also our ideas about you know, how history of Greece is integral to the history of Europe and so on. I don't want to go down that path just now. But I think we have, uh, we, we've been working with a very sort of faulty vocabulary. Um, well, coming back to this question of the history of Greece, for instance, the Minoans, that uh, first image I showed with that town and the, um, the lion chasing the deer on the mountainside, um, you know, the Minoan civilization in ancient Crete, in Bronze Age Crete, is often described as the first European civilization. And it's complete nonsense. And this was a civilization which was sort of suspended between uh, the Aegean, I mean, between Greece, uh, Turkey, the Levant, Egypt. All these areas had an enormous influence on, on the culture that developed in Crete. And, and to, to, to sort of assume that this is somehow... Uh, the, the, the root of our European heritage. I think this has actually been very damaging. I mean, there have been assumptions about, as I say, the role of Greece within Europe, which have, have really been based on a sort of uh, romantic idea of European history and, as you say, a definition of Europe, which one has to try and get away from. I think looking at the Mediterranean as a whole helps one do that. And it, it helps to break down some of the dangerous polarities that characterise mm. our political and economic discourse at the moment, doesn't it? North, south, east, west, mm. Islam, Christianity, and so forth, and so forth. Yes, yes. Um, now, I, it's invidious, I know, to ask you to choose the greatest civilization of the Mediterranean. Um, but I'm, I, I'm certainly dying to know. <laughs> yes. Um, where, would, where, would you, where would you place your, if you like... Your, 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 your sort of characterization of the, the, the most influential or significant or, well, or even the one that appeals yeah, the one that appeals to me most I suppose, well I probably would have to say that the place that appeals to me most, but it's not a Mediterranean city according to my definition, is Toledo in the Middle Ages and there's obviously a personal reason for that as well so let's move to the Mediterranean itself then I suppose I would have to say the Kingdom of Sicily in its heyday uh, which is the subject I first worked on when I was doing my PhD, and I've written quite a lot about. I mean, when I'm doing my sort of more focused research, it tends to be about medieval southern Italy and Sicily. Uh, and uh, Palermo under the Norman kings, under Frederick II, that is a good example of a sort of convivencia, practical convivencia, <clears throat> but, but one that seems to have worked. Um, and, of course, some absolutely magnificent works of art were produced, the beautiful mosaics and so on in Sicily. But what's really interesting, I think, is the way that different cultures are coming together in Sicily at that period, which is also obviously the attraction of Toledo for me, that it's a place where um, uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, not just Christians, but Greek Christians and, and Latin Christians in Sicily, they're coming together and working together and, and sort of... Um, uh, you know, they, sparks fly off, off, off each community as a result of this content. Uh, this, I mean, in a positive way, they, they interact very positively. Italy doesn't quite know what to make of Sicily even now, does it? On the radio, one hears sort of talk of Sicily as Italy's poorest region. Mm. And then, uh, you know, just, just not too long ago, this Italian state was going to sell off the Palazzo Normani, wasn't it? Was it? Oh, good, I didn't know about that. I, wouldn't I don't know if that ever happened. Oh, but goodness, was, yeah. I mean? So there seems to be this rather uh, sort, of, sort of troubled relationship mm. between mm. the identity of Sicily as Italian or not Italian, and it clearly mm. in your book is not Italian. It's a well, sort of meeting place. Yeah. Um, I mean, the period I worked on, and say for my picture, the Norman period, was a period in which Sicily was really, 
I mean, in many ways, the wealthiest part mm. of Italy. And what I was looking at was the way in which the relationship between the Sicilians and the Genoese, the Venetians, the Pisans, and so on, how this actually uh, began to stimulate the economy of northern Italy. Uh, and so it's the beginning of the process, I think, of a sort mm. of readjustment by which the north becomes economically much stronger than the south. Um, I mean, it's had its ups and downs. I'm not saying it's as simple as that. Um, but, yes, I mean, I remember when I was working in the archives in, uh, in Genoa, again as a PhD student, and there was a young Italian woman who were queuing up to collect some documents. What do you work on? I said, oh, uh, Sicily, Genoese in Sicily. Ah, the Sicilian, she said. Well, I don't want to offend anybody, but this is exactly what she said. She said, they're Arabs. And you get this view, you get it... In Rome, you'll get this view again and again. I mean, it's just really quite... Horrific. There's, there's a sort of racism towards, even towards Neapolitans. I'm not just talking about Sicilians. Uh, it's very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose it was accentuated as a result of there was a very large migration, of course, of workers up north. Uh, Italians, um, they can express themselves quite strongly on these ethnic issues. Especially in Palermo. Especially, <laughs> yeah. so. Well, about Palermo. About Palermo. Um, you've raised so many interesting questions that I'm sure people will be... Di- yes, the, the hands are going up already. Um, uh, uh, I think there's a microphone roving. Yes, can you please wait till the microphone gets to you? And it would be very helpful if you, when you ask a question you would introduce yourself first and if you could make it very clear what it is that you're asking so that the, um, the rest of the audience is... Is, uh, is fully understanding what the point is. The gentleman there, whose hand went up first. Thank you. <clears throat> Richard Bronk, um, LSE. Uh, thank you very much for a fascinating talk. It raised two quick questions in my mind. Do you talk uh, at all about Mediterranean, Mediterranean diasporas going outside the Mediterranean, for example, Sicilians to New York or Greeks to Belgium or whatever, and the cultural and financial remittances that they make back into the Mediterranean life. Um, and the other one was um, thinking about Landis's wealth and poverty of nations. Do you um, share with him um, an interest in the role of geography and climate in shaping um, both the economy and the cultures of the Mediterranean? Thank you. Yeah, um, no, uh, um, very pertinent questions. Thank you very much. Um, well, the diasporas, I do actually allude to the diasporas going outside the Mediterranean because obviously there is um, a very interesting process, for instance, in the 19th century where you get a very large uh, number of Sicilians getting on ships. I'm interested in people going on ships. Ships setting out from Italy through the Straits of Gibraltar to whether it's Argentina or North America or wherever it may be. So I allude to that. It's important from the point of view of sort of the demographic history of the Mediterranean. I couldn't really pursue that further except to say that we, we live with the effects ourselves. Um, pizza, of course, is uh, a marvellous example. I mean, pizza in New York or in London or wherever it may be of uh, the effects of these diasporas outside the Mediterranean. Uh, but there's a whole other book, I think, to be written about that. The question about climate and geography is, is one which is very much in the air at the moment, and it seems to me that um, a number of quite recent books have been laying a very significant stress on 
the role of climatic change. In fact, we had some guest lectures in Cambridge just a few weeks ago by uh, Professor Bruce Campbell from Belfast, where he was talking about climatic change in the late Middle Ages um, and its relationship to the Black Death and things like this, laying a very, very heavy emphasis on this. And there was a book about the Mediterranean in the early modern period um, by a man called Farouk Tabak, who unfortunately died around the time his book was published, called The Waning of the Mediterranean. And he attributed some of the very significant changes in patterns of trade and so on to a cooling. Well, this is something I do certainly allude to in the book. Uh, The problem is working out to what extent the sorts of changes in the commercial networks that we can identify, for instance, in the 17th century, are really related to these climatic factors and to what extent they're related to other factors. So in the case, for instance, of the shift in Venice, sorry, in Venetian Crete, in the Venetian-controlled island of Crete, Venetians controlled Crete until 1669, uh, there's a shift away from the cultivation of wheat towards the cultivation of uh, oil and wine and things like this. So... Um, is this a result of climatic change or is it actually because there's actually been a structural change in the uh, Ottoman trading networks uh, given that the major, uh, the major target of these, of these uh, uh, grain exporters from Crete was the Turkish land surrounding Crete. So you know, there are issues of that sort which seem to me to be up in the air. So I don't want to underestimate the importance of climate change, and I think that uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, quite sort of provocative work on this. On the other hand, I think it's clear from what I've said that I've tried to steer rather away from a sort of Brodellian determinism in, in looking at these factors. Um, I mean, if, if we come back to the more general sort of issues that Brodell is raising, um, taking into account the winds and the waves and the, the geography of the Mediterranean as a sort of determinant of where people might live, where the trade routes run, and so on. We're constantly faced with a challenge that ancient and medieval people did not actually build their ports in the places where logic might have prescribed that they would do so. The great case is Alexandria, which is an absolutely hopeless position, and the reason it's there, as far as we know, is that Alexander the Great had a dream and decided to put his port there. So, um, and therefore they had to build this great lighthouse because otherwise the ships would have just crashed into the reefs. Um, so um, let's not be too deterministic. That's what I'm saying. Lady here. Thank you. Elizabeth Schlala, LSE and Georgetown. Um, is there a relationship then in your mind to the notions of convivenza and cosmopolitanism in the Mediterranean? And what would you say to basically nationalist historians who just dismiss the idea of Mediterranean cosmopolitanism as romantic and really rather ahistorical. Hmm. Thank you. There's a question about the, um, the ahistoricity, potentially, of the discipline of Mediterranean history. Well, <clears throat> yes, I think, I suppose, at the risk of oversimplification, what I might say is that we, the, the term cosmopolitanism um, 
is, is in a sense a modern substitute. It's a sub- and when we're looking at the Mediterranean, let's say, in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, we'll tend to use that term. And obviously, convivente, in any case, being a Spanish word, you know, not everybody's familiar with it. Um, and like the term convivencia, cosmopolitanism has to be understood with a certain amount of reserve. In other words, that there are always these tensions between the communities and, I mean, to take an example from uh, the European landmass away from the Mediterranean, but as we saw during the uh, Yugoslav Civil War, communities that had lived side by side in Sarajevo and had apparently been on good terms with one another could turn against one another in the most vicious way. So uh, we shouldn't be deluded about the extent to it, about the ease with which sometimes these relationships can break down. And, and as I said earlier, I think one of the things that often makes them work is the patronage of rulers who are very insistent on maintaining this, the, these relationships because it might assure them of revenues through you know, trade through the port and so on. Um, I, I, think I've, I think I've already hinted when I was rather critical of Maria Rosa Menocal and her I think it's a delightful book, but uh, but exaggerated book, that uh, that one can one can get sucked into quite a romantic view of that world. Um, I suppose what my book might convey is I hope it on the one hand it can be nostalgic about that world, without on the other hand idealising that world too much. Um, I mean, clearly there were tensions that gave rise to. The, uh, the breakup of, of, this, of these cosmopolitan port cities. Um, I've mentioned the issues in Smyrna, 1922. This reflects the fact that although there were bigger political factors, there were also tensions within these cities between the Armenians, the Greeks, the Jews, the Turks, and so on, uh, which were potentially explosive. So uh, it's a question, I think, of just finding that balance. And the, the gentleman to, to along. Yes, I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development. It's an European interest economic group. Could you speak up a little, please, sir? Uh, Thank you. My name is Mr. Bonf. I'm from Oxford Sustainable Development. It's a European economic interest group in the Mediterranean countries. I would appreciate to have your opinion. Seeing this picture, saying Lore de Mar, is typical of uh, territorial governance. What is your idea about the impact? in the historical way on the territorial, let's say, governance of the Mediterranean. And what do you think about what are the key drivers for, let's say, development of the Mediterranean? Thank you. Thank you. That's a question about the uh, key driver of development in the Mediterranean. Uh, yes. Well, um, I suppose... Uh, since I'm not an economist, I, uh, I, I'm going to try and evade this question by saying that, well, on the one hand, clearly, when we're looking at the way that the economy of so many Mediterranean societies has been transformed by, uh, by tourism, and there's no doubt about it, you know, we, we, um, uh, countries that have been relatively impoverished, which have, have now uh, gained access through the opening up of tourism, the building of hotels and so on, to uh, a major source of income through tourism. So um, that has been an enormously important factor. So then the question is, 
can we continue with things as they are? Um, in a number of countries, I mean, or parts of countries, in the case of Mallorca, for instance, there have been attempts over the last 30 years or whatever to sort of move up market, to get away from the image of, you know, lots of concrete and lots of people doing this and, and really to emphasize the importance of the historical monuments and things like this. But this too can have, uh, this too can have a devastating effect. Monuments deteriorate as a result of being trampled over. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I'm evading your question, but I look at the travel supplements in the Sunday papers and we're told, you know, way beyond the Mediterranean, go to the Maldives, go to Antarctica, go to Uruguay, or wherever it may be. And you just think, well, but what about the social and economic effects of all this? There are some very positive economic effects, but there's also the danger of doing a great deal of damage to um, the places that, that, that have now come into focus as centers of tourism. As far as other um, aspects of the economy of the Mediterranean world are concerned, I mean, um, I, I'm not an expert, but, but clearly there are issues to do with the exploitation of mineral resources, gas resources in the case of Algeria and so on. Uh, all of this, and, and there's been a recent issue, a sort of spat about who controls some uh, fields uh, under the sea off, off, off Cyprus, where just about every country in the region, as you can imagine, is, is claiming a share of the gas that could be extracted from there. Um, so there are natural resources that probably could be exploited effectively, but to some extent this may in certain areas depend on the achievement of the impossible, which is peace between warring parties. Thank you very much. The lady over there. Thank you. Thanks for a very enjoyable talk. My name is Suzanne Gibson. Um, it strikes me that uh, obviously trade was very important in the Mediterranean, but for successful trade you need certainty of law, how that trade is going to be governed. And does your book explore at all um, the extent to which one country or one people impose their law on any, on all other Mediterranean cities dealing with, you know, things dealing with slave trade or just normal trade of items? No, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, obviously, um, political, uh, you know, when we're looking at periods in which, for instance, the Catalans in the 13th century or the British in the 18th century managed to establish not just a commercial network but also a political network, then it is possible to, uh, to impose uh, certain sort of legal standards. The evidence that I mainly talk about in the book actually concerns maritime law codes. And there's a bit of a mystery about this because some of them seem to have been very widely diffused. There's one that's supposed to go back to southern Italy in the 11th century, for instance, though I think the date is a bit of a myth. Um, there's one I do talk about quite a lot, which comes from Valencia in the 15th century and which had a very wide diffusion. And some of these last, they were still being printed and read, you know, for centuries and followed. Um, and clearly in some parts of the Mediterranean there must have been a sort of voluntary aspect in adhering to these things. But they make very fascinating reading. Um, it was perfectly well understood, of course, that uh, there were issues that arose at sea, for instance, the jettisoning, jettisoning of goods during a storm, uh, and these had to be carefully regulated. So if the captain says, 
we're in danger and starts throwing the cargo overboard, who is liable? Um, and so all these matters, uh, there's a marvelous example which I uh, quote in the book, all to do with having a cat on board ship to catch the rats because uh, the rats will do damage to the cargo. And what if the cat dies? And also it's question: well, the captain has to make sure that if his cat has died, he got a cat at the next port that he put into and so on. Um, so they're, they're conscious, even down to the sort of fine details. And these things are then judged by commercial courts. And one of the illustrations in the book, actually, is of the very beautiful hall known as the Yotcha, uh, the, um, the commercial court in Valencia, uh, which is a lovely Gothic building from the end of the 15th century. Uh, and that's where a lot of these matters would have been adjudicated. But as you rightly imply, there's a sort of guarantee there, royal power, which has sanctioned this legislation. And the other very important source of sort of legal controls is from the three religions, from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that the merchants would tend to operate within um, the framework of their own uh, religious law, which uh, might very well deal with all sorts of issues to do with commercial relationships as well. Uh, what we know about the, uh, the Jewish merchants in the early Middle Ages in the Mediterranean tended to follow Muslim law because it favoured um, it favoured the um, the merch- it, it, it was much more in their interest. It was all to do with the risks that might ensue if your agent ran off with your um, money when he was overseas and so on. So they actually found it sometimes more convenient not to follow the law of their own faith. But the laws of the three faiths clearly were, did provide, again, a very important framework. But there's always beyond this the question of enforceability, of course, and then beyond that, the fact that there are lots of pirates out there as well who have no interest in laws. So Coming back to the political dimension, one of the functions of rulers is either to suppress pirates or at least to run the pirates, as the Barbary Corsairs do, as the Knights of Malta do. Uh, you know, they, they are basically pirates, but there's a political power um, behind them which, um, which is sort of expressing its policies through piracy. And the gentleman there. Uh, whilst the, presumably the Suez Canal greatly added, sorry, whilst the, um, added to the trade role of uh, the Med in the 19th century and probably the 20th century, to what extent has that been eclipsed today by the growth of containerization with the Far East? So the Med's been made a sort of backwater. I, I just don't know. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the problems for the Mediterranean at the moment. I think there are attempts to deal with this. I mean, the Moroccans have just built an enormous port next door to Tangiers called Tangier Med, which is intended to attract a lot of these extremely large ships. Um, but there are major difficulties, you know, because they, some of them are going to be too large to go down the Suez Canal anyway. Uh, so these would actually tend to be ships going up through the Bosphorus towards... Uh, towards Ukraine, Crimea. Um, the, Mediter- the building of the Suez Canal, of course, had a very important effect on the Mediterranean, transforming it into, well, I hinted at this earlier, transforming it into a sort of channel for traffic coming from the Atlantic into the Indian Ocean and back again. And the Mediterranean itself rather sort of loses its own importance in the process. Uh, And then, as you say, this is accentuated by the sorts of changes that we've seen more recently, which 
which really rule it out as a route to some of these places much further to the east. So I think this is a problem that the Mediterranean countries are going to have to face up to, certainly. And, you know, for Egypt, which has always depended for part of its income on the Suez Canal, one wonders what, you know, Suez Canal plus tourism, not very much else. So um, one wonders what the future holds. I think we've got time for two more questions. The gentleman over there has tried a couple of times. Um, Yeah. Um, David, David Glue. Um, Shlomo Sand's invention of the Jewish people says that um, although every Jew in theory, say, living in the Mediterranean, should want to emigrate to the Holy Land for you know, a period of a thousand years or more, in fact, very few did, and the whole concept of immigrating to the Holy Land sort of was rather sort of back to front and weird, and they did, you know, they, there was a sort of contradiction, which so they were perfectly happy to say where they were, although in theory they should all want to live in the Holy Land. Am I, am I summing that up? No, it's a very interesting question. I mean, Sands greatly overstates uh, the evidence that he has. I mean, if one were to take, for instance, his evidence about mass conversions. I, actually, I've often said similar things myself. I think that many of the Spanish Jews were descended from Berber converts, many of the Yemenite Jews from South Arabian converts, many of the uh, East European Jews from sort of Turkic converts and so on. Um, but the DNA evidence suggests that there was still always um, an ancient sort of Palestinian element within the DNA. So uh, that's all about up in the air. Sands lately has been saying, don't believe the DNA, but I, you know, I'm not an expert on DNA. Um, uh, the, there's an interesting question here that... Um, I mentioned, actually, in connection with my own family, right? So they left Spain and went to the Holy Land, uh, but there were very few families, a dozen families or so, that did that from Spain that we know about. And most of them actually dispersed around other parts of the Mediterranean, going to uh, Italy, a uh, great many to Salonica, uh, Izmir, and so on. Uh, and eventually, quite a lot also went to Morocco. So... Um, I mean, what you've got to take into account, of course, is the political barriers that existed. It wasn't very easy physically to get to the Holy Land, and it, well, once you were there, you had to negotiate with the Turkish authorities after 1517 when they ruled that area. Um, but it could be done. Um, and Sanders raises interesting questions. I mean, he's, he's very political in his approach, and he's setting out to be provocative. Um, so sometimes one has to take him with a pinch of salt. Uh, pinch of salt, but I think um, there's always something to sort of chew over in what he says. So, in a word, exaggeration, but not, not to be totally ignored. Thank you. Lady there. Hello, my name is Tara Mikhail. I'm a graduate student at LSE. Actually, I'm really curious to know your opinion about the impact or role played by the Middle Eastern countries like Lebanon or Syria in shaping or defining the Mediterranean you're talking about today? Thank you. The, um, yes, I mean, one of the uh, choices that one has to make when one's trying to be very selective, and this arose when I was talking about some of the changes in the port cities around the Mediterranean in the late 19th, 20th centuries, uh, it's not just which places to include, but can one really get away with excluding certain places?
places. And uh, I noticed that Philip Mansell, who, uh, a friend of mine who had written a book called Levant, uh, where he talks about Beirut and Alexandria and where else, like Smyrna or whatever, um, uh, Beirut, he said, why, why doesn't he deal with Beirut? Um, I don't say much about Beirut uh, and Lebanon and the Syrian coast. And I think part of the problem, to my mind, is this is more a question than an answer. To what extent, actually, the economic efflorescence of Beirut, which we saw up to at least the uh, sort of um, civil wars in, in Lebanon in recent history, was the result of engagement with the Mediterranean and to what extent it was actually the result of Beirut acting as a sort of financial capital of uh, the Arab world, so looking eastwards, actually, um, as far east as, let's say, the Persian Gulf and so on. So I'm not sure about the answer there. Um, uh, When it comes to other types of engagement, of course, there's some very significant aspects in terms of migration, Um, The question that was raised earlier about migration out of the Mediterranean, clearly very large numbers of Syrian and Lebanese migrants, but moving often as far as the United States or South America. Um, But my sense is that although that area had been, of course, in the remote past, and for for, for millennia, actually, of course, the coast of Lebanon was... It was the focal point not just of the Phoenician merchants, they had predecessors, and then we hear even in the late Roman period about so-called Syrian merchants who appear to come from that part of the world who were trading in France in the 6th, 7th centuries. There's a very long history there, but um, the extent to which that is sort of sustained in the modern period following the destruction of a lot of the cities by the Mamluks and so on is something I'm not really clear about. And we have time for a final question in the, that, that lady there. Hello, uh, my name is Peggy Vasiliu. Uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker um, uh, with great interest in the Mediterranean. Uh, thank you very much for your very inspiring uh, talk and presentation. Um, I was wondering... Um, we talked a lot about, we, we talked today a lot about the movements of population which made the Mediterranean such a fascinating place and such a diverse place as well. In your opinion, through your research, did you, do you think that there is one Mediterranean identity that a lot of people around that great sea would feel as, as part of their either DNA or recognition or familiarity or sensibility of familiarity? The question is, is there one Mediterranean identity? Thank you. That's a very good question, and it's something that's often talked about, of course, and it's even cultivated. I mean, if you go to Malta or if you go to parts of Catalonia or whatever, they very much, the inhabitants very much want to project themselves as sort of citizens of the Mediterranean. And this is partly bound up with issues to do with their own national identity and the sense of being small in a big, in a big sea. Um, I, I suppose my answer is I can't really see that there is nowadays. I think I, I've talked about the fractured Mediterranean, which has come into being since, uh, really since decolonization. Um, Brodel was convinced there was, and he was working in the framework of uh, a group of actually rather 
ultra-nationalist French historians who talked about the Mediterranean as a sea of Latinity. And this was a group of historians and archaeologists based at the University of Algiers, so they were French settlers, um, who were, I suppose, in a sense, trying to sort of justify the presence of the French all along the coast of North Africa. And this concept of Latinity, that there was some, some basic sort of, that, that, that everybody ultimately had these roots in the Roman past, but wait a moment, who was everybody? Everybody was actually the French, the Italians, and the Spaniards, and did not include the Arabs and Berbers of North Africa, or the Turks, or whatever. Uh, so it was a rather poisonous term, actually. And he did latch on to that at one or two points in his book. Um, but... Um, I think probably what I'm really saying is that the Mediterranean, although I've identified these port cities where a degree of, we're coming back to the earlier question, cosmopolitanism has emerged. On the other hand, taking there as a whole, of course, there are very divergent populations with very divergent ethnic origins, religious beliefs, um, political histories, and so on. Uh, and so I'm thinking more of the Mediterranean as a place where lots of I identities confront one another. And sometimes in these port cities, they do sort of merge, or at least they coexist very closely together. But I'm actually thinking of lots of identities rather than a single Mediterranean one. Thank you very much indeed for your questions. And on behalf of the European Institute, thank you very much for coming. It would be very helpful if you could remain seated while Professor Abulafia leaves the, the, the lecture theatre. I think you're <laughs> signing books. I'm signing books. Signing books in the lobby just outside. Oh, yes. um, and it remains to say thank you very much indeed to you for coming and for talking to us.